Um, so, good evening. It's, I'm delighted to be here. Um, I'm having a lot of fun. I, I am under this impression that uh, the United States is just a um, country where everybody's learning Torah. Because <laughs> all I do is I come here and I go from place to place and everywhere they, they, they are giving shiurim. So, I have this really interesting impression of, uh, of what goes on here. So, uh, you know, I'm not looking to change that impression. Uh, people have said otherwise, but I don't believe it at all. Um, so anyway, thank you very, very much for coming. Um, it, is, uh, it is a real pleasure to be here. Uh, Rob David Silver is a, is a very close personal friend, and uh, I have a lot of uh, love for this institution, and so it's a, a real delight to be here um, in, in, in Jewish. I, I would like to uh, introduce this topic with a word of caution. Um, this is a shear that I, I, what I'm going to try and do is describe a little bit about the rabbinic Ezra, not the biblical Ezra. To describe the biblical Ezra, maybe I'll give a two-minute introduction to the biblical Ezra, but to describe the biblical Ezra, you'd have to read the books of Ezra, the books of Nehemiah, and um, you know that is something you can simply open a Tanakh. The chapters are relatively easy to understand, and you can pick this up, but to find the, the rabbinical view of Ezra, I think we're going to discover as being almost a, a, a more fascinating, fascinating character. And that's what we're going to dedicate our, our time to today. Um, now, I have to warn you, some people when they hear this class, they think it sounds, it's going to sound rather heretical. Because I'm going to paint Ezra as being quite an extreme revolutionary. But um, don't worry. Um, I, for any of you who are worried about uh, you know, the religious credentials, I can promise you that all of the sources we're going to be bringing tonight are all um, tried and tested rabbinic sources from uh, the Talmud and from the Midrashim. And uh, you will see actually how standard uh, Talmudic sources are really going to paint a very exciting and maybe even surprising view of, of Ezra. So, um, you know, without any further ado, I think we, we need to start giving some background and dive into this topic. Who is Ezra? Most people, if you ask them, who is Ezra, they will tell you the following. Ezra built the second temple. Um, so I just want to already smash that uh, out of the water. Uh, Ezra did not build the second temple. <laughs> and it's the um, Ezra didn't build the second temple. In order to um, put Ezra into context, Let's uh, look at the time, the little time uh, line that I put at the top of the sheet here. Uh, if you look, we're going from left to the right. Okay, 586 BCE, the first temple is destroyed. Much of the Jewish people go into exile. Some go to Babylon. Maybe even more than that, go to Egypt. And it seems from both historical evidence and from the Tanakh that the land of Israel was pretty much you know, empty of Jews. In the north there were what they called the Samaritans, okay, who were sort of like an interesting mix of Jews and non-Jews and, and what have you, eventually developed their own identity, but more or less the land, certainly around Jerusalem, didn't have a lot of Jews in. Until 536, when the famous Cyrus Declaration, Cyrus says he becomes the, the, the head of Persia, and he allows Jews to come back to Jerusalem. He even offers to build to pay for the building of the Beit Hamidash, and he returns vessels of the temple which were looted from the first temple. 
a group of people come back. One of the leaders who are mentioned, his name is Shesh Batzar, another's name is Zerubabel. Um, it's not really going to concern us too much. You'll notice they come back in the declarations of 536. It seems like they come back in 535. But you will see that I've said that the temple is not built till 515. That's according to internal evidence in the book of Ezra, where they say the temple was built in the sixth year of Darius. It seems like it took 20 years for them to get the wherewithal to build the temple. The temple is now standing in Jerusalem, 515. That's true. Yes. Okay, well I'm not gonna I'm not gonna address that right now. Around the year five four hundred and fifty is when Ezra comes on the scene. According to the book of Ezra, it's in the seventh year of Artachshasta, who we think is Artaxerxes. And um, Ezra quite we, we don't quite know how he reached his position. Ezra is somebody who gets a royal writ from the king of Persia, from the uh, uh, head, of, head of the kingdom of Persia which says that he is going to come to, to Jerusalem and he is allowed to teach the law of Israel there um, not only that that the king of Persia says to him that he is allowed to teach judges teach the law and find people imprison people and even pronounce the death sentence he's given a tremendous license to change him However, I have to say, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, he gets there. And the minute he's there, he prays, and he's, people come to him and say to him, um, Rabbi, right? Ezra's called Ezra HaSofer. Sofer means scribe. But in the Shemona Yisrael, we talk about Pleitat Sofrehem. The word scribe in the Shemona Yisrael, the way we use it, there's sheets there by the door. The way we use the word scribe sometimes means scholar or sage and it seems like he was certainly a sage people come to him and say Ezra do you know all the people are getting intermarried even the heads of the priesthood are marrying out what are we going to do and Ezra it says Ezra tore out his hair and he cried and he prayed okay? and eventually calls the people to an assembly and they all say Rabbi this is a very very big problem everybody's intermarrying. It's such a big problem. You know what we've got to do? We've got to make a committee. We've got to make a committee to sort this situation out. Now, I see many people who have probably got many years of communal work behind them in the room. What happens when you decide to solve the problem in that way? You talk about it for 50 years. You talk about it for a long time. It's very interesting that there was another guy who came along very soon after, 13 years after, his name was Nehemiah. Right? I'll, I'll just put it the way Rosh Steinzalt says. Rosh Steinzalt said, when Ezra, would saw, when Ezra um, saw the trouble of intermarriage, it says, and he fell on his knees and he tore out his hair. When the Chem is in the light what people are doing, he says, I tore out their hair. <laughs> and now you know why Nehemia was more effective than Ezra. Okay? Um, Ezra and Nehemia, what was their job? Okay? As I say, they tried to counter the problems of intermarriage. One of the challenges they deal with is reestating Jerusalem. It's really in the family who has a lot of the work. It seems like Ezra was sort of like the spiritual leader, and Nehemiah was the administrator. Nehemiah is high up in the government. Um, he gets the leave from Persia to come, and Nehemiah, first job in 52 days, they haven't managed in 70 years to build the walls of Jerusalem. In 52 days, Nehemiah puts the walls up. Okay. Next thing he does is he brings everybody together, makes them sign a contract. 
contract is, we're going to keep Shabbos. We're not going to intermarry. Okay? He makes them sign. It's unbelievable. He even makes a tax that one out of every ten people has to live in Jerusalem. One out of every ten people, he, he, he legislates it. Because he wants to really raise the price of Jerusalem, and I would even hasten to add that it's probably because of um, probably because of Nehemiah that the whole Second Temple period sort of got off the ground. So that is a little bit about the biblical Ezra and the biblical Nehemiah, and um, we we're going to move into trying to understand not the biblical Ezra and the biblical Nehemiah, but the, the rabbinic one. Okay. So let's try and go to... Yes. Some of the years that are lost. When the lost years occur? The lost years? Yeah. We're talking about the, the Persian calendar versus Chazal's calendar? No, even the Chazal's calendar. Hi. I only have... I don't have any more sheets. So... Maybe someone in the office Um... Oh, maybe somebody can, sh- if you just share, and then they, they can. Well, you can't take this because I need to read oh, it. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Um, let's, let's try and get a start thing, Ezra, in the world of the rabbis. Yeah. I, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to. I, yes. In, ter- in terms of chronology, there is a, a big dissonance between the way that the rabbis see the chronology and the way historians do. But I'm going to gloss over that for now. Okay? I don't think it's so uh, critical to our topic. Um, let's, let's deal with the rabbinic Ezra, and here we're going to really set sail. First text. And this will sort of give you an impression of how the rabbis view this. I have to say, sorry, one thing I forgot in terms of our chronology. I said Ezra came in about 4.50. I didn't finish the top line, the timeline. Um, Ezra, in the rabbinic view, is seen as part of a um, body of rabbis known as the Unshakeness and Abdullah, the men of the Great Assembly. This group, the Great Assembly, is a group that we don't know so much about. The rabbis talk about them incessantly. External sources really have a bit of a black hole on this period. We don't have a lot of information. We have very few external sources and almost no writing about it. The rabbinic period, writings of Breitok and Mishnayot, only begin more or less after the period of Hanukkah, 150 BCE. We have the first rabbinic writings. Okay? What happened between 450 and 150 BCE? We don't know. The rabbis call this the men of the great assembly. The rabbis say how many people were in the Great Assembly? 120. Okay, 120. In fact, today's Knesset is, has 120 Chavrei Knesset, 120 members of Parliament, to, because, and that's why it's called Knesset, right? It's, it's just not good or luck, apparently. <laughs> um, um, but we have the unshakenness, we have the unshakenness to love, we don't know quite what they did. Were they just a uh, a, a body which regulated Jewish law? Were they like a Sanhedrin, a Supreme Court? Maybe they were a sort of activist legislative body? Maybe they were the national administration, like a sort of proto-government? We have no clue. We know that during that time, Eretz Israel is under Persian rule, and then switches to Greek rule. 
we do not really understand how this unshakeness of dollar functions. But we're still going to talk a lot about them. By the way, when historians want to know about what they are, they have to turn to Jewish sources, the Talmud. There's no... They really, really don't know what happened between... Uh, archaeology is now finding a little bit. But between uh, about 450 BCE and around the time of Hanukkah, there was very sparse information. Okay. I say this as somebody who's like studied it from the rabbinic perspective and also from the academic perspective. Right? Uh, you know, going to courses in uh, rabbinic history and Barilan and you know, the history of the Second Temple, really very little is known about this period. What did this... Not really. This was way before. Right. Well, Josephus was after this, but yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, wouldn't it be possible to see it as instrumental in the sense that the rabbinic sources sort of created this hey, is the Manche Knesset Gidola, so it reflects on them? Because there is no sources. Okay, so it, it, anything's possible, right? What you're suggesting is something a little bit, um, I don't know, some sort that the rabbis later on recreated sort of like an assembly in their own image and sort of projected backwards that that was all happening for 300 years even though it's not necessarily true. Okay? That could be. I can't rule that out as a possibility. I hope, right? I hope that they weren't... I mean, first of all, if they did concoct it, so there's nothing... Right? Uh, Although, the the way they they talk about it is... Right, the way they talk about it is almost being the recipient of a legacy. Right? And they see mm-hmm. them as a link in the chain. Let me just give you an example. And the best, the best way you can draw this example is with this first Mishnah in Avot. Perkei Avot tries to recreate the chain of the Sorah, the chain of the passing of the oral law. We need two there. Um, and it says like this. So following it, I'm going to read in Hebrew and sort of translate a little bit, but you can, uh, you can follow in English as well. Uh, all the sources are more, more, almost all the sources are translated. Moses received the Torah from Sinai. He passed it to Joshua. Joshua passed it to the Zikhanim. The elders, the Zikhanim passed it to the Nevi'im. The Nevi'im passed it to the men of the great assembly. I'd like to just already stop at this point and say, for those of you who know your sort of orders of the books of Tanakh, this is organized more or less according to the books. Moshe is the Torah. Next book, passed it to Joshua. Joshua... In, even in the book of Joshua it says, Has that the next group of people for the time of the judges is the Kenim. Then, the book of Shmuel and Malachim is the book of prophets, because there's a lot of prophets during that time. And then we go into exile, and they passed it on to the men of the great assembly, that's second temple. By the way, the next mission after this talks about Shimon HaTzadik, who was Mishiarei Knesset Abdullah. Shimon Atzadik, who was one of the last men of the Great Assembly, and he, according to legend, even though it's almost verifiably untrue, this legend, uh, according to legend, met Alexander the Great, wearing the clothes of the high priest, and Alexander was dazzled by him. But it gives you some sense that this is the, the black hole, this beginning, you know, first half of the Second Temple period. All right. What do these men of Great Assembly do? This is going to be their motto, right? You know, when they made a when they had a crest sitting above their, you know, you know, they had a crest. I mean, they had to, right? Doesn't, doesn't everybody, right? Okay? So they had to put a motto, right? So people put, you know, motto. Uh, it was in Latin as well, right? Okay? Um, so, they, they had three things on their crest, right? What did they say? 
Be delivered in judgment or matun in modern Hebrew means anyone? Patient or moderate. Okay? Moderate. Um, uh, some of these are political moderates, you call him matun. Okay, so not knowledgeable, no? Sorry? Knowledgeable in No, 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 not knowledgeable. Um, so be moderate in judgment. Okay? Maybe deliberate in other words again, deliberate is the idea. See all the different sides, take it slow. The opposite of haste, right? No. Okay? Um, so that's number one. Number two, establish many students. Number three, make a fence around the Torah. Let's, let's maybe begin with the last one. When we say make a fence around the Torah, what sort of things are we referring to? So the classic example that everybody gives is Mukta, which actually is a very good one because um, actually in the, in the time of Nehemia, the rabbis say that Nehemia, same time as Ezra instituted Mukta. Nehemia had to be baffled for Shabbat. And in fact, he talks about the fact that people are bringing things into the of Jerusalem and they're trading on Shabbat. If you have a barter economy, you don't even need to use money. And so the Talmud says that he wanted to stop the shuk that was going on on Shabbat. What did he do? He said, everything's Mukta. Everything's Mukta. Apart from the things you need to eat, to eat your Friday night dinner. That's it. That's what the Talmud said. And then slowly, once everyone used to, once the shook closed down, the people got used to keeping he slowly relaxed the law. It's not really important whether it exactly was uh, Nehemiah or whatever, but a good example of a fence around the Torah is when you see something actually being broken, you try and make safety rules, right? Okay? When you have a situation in which you're concerned about really some sort of danger, so you you know, create some sort of fences around them. And that seems to be what happened. So, the first thing they're going to be saying is, we are going to, effectively, expand law. We're going to take, we know what Shabbat is, but we're worried that the core of Shabbat is going to be broken. So what are we going to do? We're going to make Shabbat, we're going to beef it up. Okay? We're going to beef up Shabbat for things like Mukta, Okay? And that way, the core won't be, won't be harmed. Okay? You might be aware, I mean, one of the problems was intermarriage. Right? So they talk about how the men of the Great Assembly created Shni'im La'arayot, first of all. They expanded the number of forbidden marriages, but also, it's during the Second Temple period that all sorts of regulations are made about whether Jews are allowed to drink together with uh, idolaters, or maybe even non-Jews in general. Right? Are they allowed to eat their bread? Are they allowed to have their oil. In other words, you've got a problem with intermarriage, so create all sorts of obstacles to some sort of social, you know, mixing. Um, so this is, this is the sort of thing they do. I want to come back then to If this is the type of court we're dealing with, why are they saying, be moderate in judgment? Because... Sorry? Much of it is stringencies. In other words, this is what I would call an activist court. Okay, this is a court which wants to <coughs> wants to create legislation. Part of its agenda right, is to create new laws. If you want to create new laws, then the thing is, have room to Don't go over the top. In other words, they're constantly in this balance, right? And the second thing, in other words, what I'm saying is, on the one hand, asuskiyakatara make offense on the Torah. On the other hand, that's balanced out by be deliberate in judgment or be moderate in judgment, that's to create a balance. And 
So that's one, those two balance. And then the third leg is let's expand the ranks of the educated masses. If, but I'll say something here. We went into exile during the exile of Babylon for only 50 years. Things almost totally fell apart. Judaism was really in danger, even the, the, the people who came back. And as I say, if they're already all intermarried with the local tribes, and they're not being Shabbat, and they're not looking after the temple, and the priesthood is sort of like more or less disintegrated, what else were they doing? Whereas these are core values, and uh, they're disintegrated with just 50 years of exile. You know, we dread to think, without this, we've had almost 2,000 years of exile, and yet, or more than 2,000 years, of, and the religion is intact. So, one wonders, you know, Ezra felt a real need to do something. So let's see what he did. Okay? Let's try to see what he did. Let's look at source number two. Amalei Rav Shimon Bar Abba L'Rabi Yochanan Mechdei Anshayk Nefer Abdullah Tiknu Lehem Yisrael Brachot Tfilot Kushot Hazalot the men of great assembly established blessings, tefillot, prayers, kiddush, and havdal. Okay. Now again, I, I don't know how much you think about this, but any of you who have studied the Rambam, for example, in the laws of prayer, the Rambam says in the first temple period there were no, there was no such thing as prayer. If you would get up in the morning and maybe they'd say, "Oh wow, what a beautiful day! Thank you, God," and that would be all they needed to do, or. Oy vey, my horse died, you know, Tevya, right, uh, my horse died. Ah, can you, can you help me? And that would be Tzfilah. But, a regulated daily prayer didn't exist. It's during Brachot didn't exist. Okay, so, how do we use blessings? Every time, you know, again, if you've learned, studied the Masechet Brachot, it says, the Torah says, but you eat, you're satisfied, and then you bless. So, Birchat Amazon, great after meals, is a Torah law. What about saying a blessing before you eat? It's rabbinic. What does it mean rabbinic? These guys, they said, hey, one second, if every time you put something into your mouth, every time you, you ingest, every time you see an amazing sight, you say a Shechianu or a Semar Sebreshit, before you do a mitzvah, don't just, you know, do a mitzvah and not be aware of it. Prepare yourself, right? Say, a blessing before you do a mitzvah. So, they're creating now a whole ritual of Judaism, a whole liturgy. In terms of the Shmona Yisrael, they create the fabric of the 18 blessings, which is the central prayer. They create that infrastructure. That infrastructure, by the way, they create the basic skeleton, and that is beefed up. It's, it's sort of like developed over the next 500 years. I don't know if you're aware. Sorry, I don't know, I don't know the audience too well. Um, but, Anybody who's aware, for example, the Cairo Geniza, realizes there are all sorts of alternate versions of the blessings of the Shemona and yet most of them have the same beginning and the same end. So it seems like Ezra starts creating the skeleton, and it was still left fluid, and later on it sort of became encrusted. Um, but think about it. Once we have structure of prayer, what can we do? We can pray together. And suddenly, that's why, in Bayit Sheni, in the Second Temple period, we start seeing the development of synagogues, of shuls, of Basei Knesset. So in other words, until you have a set liturgy, you can't pray together. Once you have an order of prayer, now we all can say the same things, 
Now we can all follow along. Now we can pray together. Suddenly we create. Suddenly it's during archaeology shows that during the Second Temple, be it in Gamla or in uh, you know um, uh, all sorts of other places. So we find in Masada and in Herodian, Batei Knesset and other places as well, Kfar Nachum and, and other places where there are Batei Knesset from the Second Temple period. There is there is a rabbinic view which says that um, in some way the shalma parim the prayers are there to replace the sacrifices, but we actually have evidence that uh, it seems like there was already a sort of synagogue even in the second temple period. We have, for example, evidence from the uh, New Testament about Jesus being in a in, in a in a synagogue reading from the prophet's step well, before, the, before the second temple yeah. I don't think we have evidence before the second temple uh, what, what, what was happening in what? what about elephant time in Egypt that was a temple no yeah that's what I'm saying oh. that, that's, but that's prior to Baishani uh, I think it's during Baishani if I'm not mistaken what, what I, think, I think it was in, during Baishani what about that back in yeah, well, I mean, still that pretty early oh, yeah. <laughs> what? that was a fully functioning temple right. Okay, they like they decided we didn't need Jerusalem. We'll make a temple in in, in Egypt. Yeah, that, 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 what about back in Babel, where uh, before uh, the Torah, uh, is there reference to gatherings or any archaeological evidence? From archaeological evidence, we have none. Are there gatherings? You have, for example. Well, let's take the Megillah. Right, we're going to read the Megillah soon. Lech Knosset Yehudim, gather the Jews. Okay, so that's after Korach, but still in Babel shortly after. So you could say Lech Knosset, that, that verb, right? Bet Knesset, right? But I don't see those. Bet Knesset, it's it's an ad hoc, it's an ad hoc gathering. So, um, so when did the Bet Knesset from Eretz Yisrael's catch in Babel? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, um, but it was developing during the Second Temple, and things move. You know, even even yeah. not in the even not in the globalized internet era, right? Things that there were people, there was a you know trans, transmission of of, of Makarot. Let's deal with also with Kiddush and Havdalah. In other words, uh, you know, currently there's a Olympics going on, right? Kiddush and Havdalah, the opening ceremony, the closing ceremony, right? Okay, I don't know if you send doves, but you know they do light a torch at the end. Um, the, the idea is you want to make Shabbos into an event, okay? Maybe people didn't even realize Shabbat was coming in. They just came home from work, and if, you know, if you really don't have Kabbalat Shabbat, you know, no mind called that Kabbalat Shabbat. You don't have, you don't have Arvit, right? What do you do? You just go home, it gets dark, right? Maybe you eat. So they come up with this idea of Kiddush. You raise a cup of wine, you say, this is what it's all about. Right? At the end of Shabbat, you say, okay, I'm making a separation between the sanctified date and the end. Suddenly, you isolate this day, you give it a bit of shape, you give it a little bit of bracketing, and suddenly this is a boost where we actually get a chance to, around the table, talk about what this day is all about. A bit of home education, let's call it. Right? So, they are, but the, the medical assembly, where does this come from? No, this is all invented, right? By the way, I think we would even say today, these are many of the things that shape our Jewish sensibilities. But it, it goes back to them. They, these are the people, 
I, I sort of find it quite understandable why things fell apart so quickly. They didn't. What? Rav Cook. We're going to come back to Rav Cook at the end. Rav Cook says that in first temple period, this he says in an article in Orot called La Mahalach Ideot Yisrael, um, the process of ideas in Israel. He says that during the first temple period, religion was um, felt almost totally through the prism of the national but not through individual observance. How did we experience our Chagim? At the temple. It was a national event. The Torah says, you know, if God's happy with you, you will win wars, the economy will, will be good. So when people felt that the economy went up and the gross national you know, uh, product was good, they said, ah, God loves us. Right? But the idea of personalization of religion, religion in that sense was very remote. By the way, if you want to get a sense of what it's like, it's a bit like uh, a lot of the statistics that people say about, about Israelis. Right? I, once, uh, I work for an organization called Sohar where we do uh, weddings for sometimes the secular public. And I once did a wedding for a, a, a couple. Um, he was Israeli. The way he described himself was seventh generation Chiloni Lemahadrin. That's how he described himself. Um, um, secular, glut kosher secular. Okay? Glut kosher secular. Okay? <laughs> and um, she was a, a she came from California okay they met he was uh, with his high tech company in Silicon Valley somewhere she was from a conservative family from California and they met and they were going out and they got serious and they decided they were taking a trip to Israel to meet his family so he thought he had to sort of brief her a little bit so he said to her uh, you know we're going to go back and I just want to explain to you Friday night the whole family gets together and you know my, my mum likes candles and my dad, you know, takes a cup of wine and we all, you know, this is something we do every week it's like sort of an Israeli thing, right? <laughs> and, um, and she, she said to him, what do you mean Israeli, you know? My, my, my parents sometimes do that in California and he's like, no, no, it's Israeli you trust me, all my Israeli friends do this, right? Um, and he had no, no understanding, he said, he's like totally secular, right? He really thought it was an Israeli thing, right? Sort of thing Israelis do. He didn't realize it was necessarily connected to Judaism. That's because, you know, as far as he's concerned, in the same way as you have, you know, Thanksgiving or, you know, President's Day or Christmas, right? So you have Sukkot and Hanukkah. It's a national culture, right? Um, that's a lot of the way, but that means, right, that when you go to Babylon, you can take on the Babylonian culture. Maybe it's not surprising that... The monks we have, Nisan, Iyar, Sivan, Tammuz, right? Tammuz is an Assyrian god. Um, those are Babylonian names. Because, we'll talk about it in a minute, you take on the, the, the national symbols of the culture you go to, right? Um, the notion of the individualization of religion is something which happens, says Rav Kuk, during the Second Temple period. Suddenly people start looking at more individual rituals in... in individualized ritual mitzvot masiot, personal mitzvot and this is a sort of like a, a, a new development uh, in Judaism um, uh, Rav Kook has these very evolutionary views of how halacha changes and he sees that as a change and I think this is part of it um, that so many people are saying they're independent blessings they're not praying collectively at the temple with the high priest doing it all they're saying their own Shemona Yisrael they're saying their own prayers every Home is becoming into a Mikdash Ma'at, its own little temple, with Shabbat being declared at the beginning and at the end, etc. Okay? This is the first stage. Um, let's deal 
with a couple of other things. Um, source number three. Okay. Um, there's a typo here in the Hebrew. It says Mar, but it should say Amar. Sorry, my mouse was too eager. Amar Rabbi Yoshua ben Levi. Eshim yarbatanyot Yoshua and Sheikhlet Adola al Kotvei Farim Tefilin Umuzot Sheloi Tashru. The men of the Great Assembly fasted 24 fasts. Very interesting one, right? That scribes should not get too wealthy. Shouldn't get too wealthy. Why? Because if they get too wealthy, they will not write. Okay? Apparently it's very, very difficult to be a scribe, to be writing all day. Um, I don't, you must mess your eyes up, your back gets hurt, I don't know what. For anybody here is a sofa. I, have a, I, I live in a little uh, yeshuv, and um, there's a, a, a sofa, he's about 60, 65 years old, uh, he's not in the best of health. And um, I always used to wonder about his daily schedule, because if I ever got up really late and went to the latest minyan in the morning, he was always there. And then I'd go, if I went to the lunchtime mincha, he was always there, right? And uh, I always, while he was always like walking around, I sort of wondered, when did he write? So when I, when my son needed to fill in for his mitzvah, I went to this guy, Itchamer is his name, and I said to him, you know, what's, that, what's your daily schedule? You know, like, how do you, what, what do you do every day? So he says, you know, he says, it's really, after I write for three hours, my arm's killing me, my eyes are killing me, I can't concentrate anymore, and I'm going to be not missing out of what? So he says, so what I do, I, sit, I get up in the morning, I go for a walk, I learn a little bit, I go to the mikvah, I go to the late minion, and I go, have breakfast, and then I write for three hours. I'm exhausted, I don't mincha, I go to sleep. <laughs> right? And then I write from four to seven, that's it, that's a full day of writing, I, I can't do more than that. Right? It's a really hard job. So, if you, if you can get out of the writing profession, right, you know, if you can, you know, I don't know, become a, I don't know, a banker, a, you know, I don't know what, right, you can become a doctor, you stop writing. So the unshakeness to the last day, we need people to write, right? Let's remember, this is not just a ritual scribe. This is the publishing industry. If you want the Ha'amid Talmidim Harbeh, you want to have lots of students, you need lots of texts. They need a lot of Sifrei Torah to be written, okay? So that they can, you know, they can sort of disseminate the scriptures, that disseminate the writings, right? So, how are they going to be able to do that if people aren't writing? So it says, they, they even fasted so that the poor scribe should stay poor, right? And um, they'll stay in the profession and they won't move up the, uh, sort of like, move up the ladder, the, the, the employment ladder. Okay? Alright. What else does Ezra do? Okay? Here's a real uh, su- surprising one. If we're talking about the Torah itself, I mentioned Ezra is seen as Ezra HaSofer, that's the way he's described. Um, by the way, Ezra is a Kohen, uh, so he comes from a uh, priestly family. But look at this, I'm uh, sorry, I forgot to put the translation here, but I'll read it. Uh, maybe even before I read it, I will point out the lettering that you see on the left-hand side at the bottom. What you see on the left column is what we call Ketav Ivri, ancient Hebrew script. On the right is what we call Ketav Ashuri. Anybody you know what the word Ashuri means? Ashur? Assyria. In other words, this is what we call the Assyrian font. Now don't worry, they're the same letter. An Aleph is an Aleph. A Bet is a Bet. A Gimel is a Gimel. Right? But, um, it's like, you know, you know, Times New Roman, right? Hebrew, Assyrian. Right? Okay? Now, what the interesting thing is, of course, you can't read the Hebrew script. Well, unless you're, you know, a biblical expert, right? Or archaeologist, maybe you can. But I can't, right? 
Um, it seems like the ancient Hebrew scripts, and if you find any stuff from the first temple period, it's always in this type of script. All of the seals that are found in the city of David from the first temple period are all in this font that we can't understand. And suddenly, in the second temple period, we start seeing the font on the right, which we start beginning to recognize, which is really interesting. You can actually find both in the second temple period. The Talmud relates to this, and it says the following. Amar Marzutra Bitema Marukva. Marzutra said, possibly Marukva said, in the beginning, when the Torah was given, it was given in that ancient Hebrew font, and in Hebrew. What happened? Chazrav and Iknala had been made Ezra Biktav Ashurit for Lashon Arami. In the time of Ezra, it was re-given in Aramaic and in the Assyrian font. I said before that they brought back other names in the month, they also brought back another alphabet. Right. <laughs> Apparently, while they were by the rivers of Babylon, they also learned, you know, the kids went to public school, right? And they learned the local uh, language, and they also learned the local alphabet. And this is, became more legible for them, or more accessible to them. And it says, when, in the days of Ezra, they, it was re-given in Tab uh, Ashurit, um, the Assyrian font, and the Shonarami in Aramaic. Very interesting phrase. Israel chose to keep the Assyrian font, but to keep writing the Torah in Hebrew. Okay? Who used the ancient Hebrew scripts and Aramaic? Those are the Hegyotot, the common people. Who are the common people? Says the Talmud, Ma Hegyotot. Kutai. Kutai are the Kutians, otherwise known as the Shomronim. Okay, the Kuti. Um, okay, alright. By the way, the last line which I highlighted is, is Tanya Rabbi Yossi Omer, Oihaya Ezra Tishitinatim Torah Adoli Israel. Ezra was so incredible that he could have, the Torah could have been given by Ezra. Okay, in other words, Ezra is like the second Moses. I just wanted to realize how radical what's happening here is. Ezra wants Torah to be intelligible to the masses. He says, they won't be able to read it. So let's, he says, let's change the font and let's change the language. You know? Sounds crazy, right? From our contemporary perspective. The bona, that's, it's not clear, it's not clear what it is in this context. Right? Um, the people apparently say, oh, Ezra, take it easy. Okay? That's too much. We want to keep the Hebrew? <laughs> But we'll go with your font idea, right? Yes. What's the concept of printed letters versus the script that we write, we write the letters? Um, where did the script come from? Right? You're saying yeah, right. the way we print it, and not uh, I, don't, I don't, actually don't know. I'm not a. These letters here, out of the Gimel, these are printed letters. Yes. And those are the way they're written in the Torah. So right. we're interested actually in the Torah. We don't like the Torah in the script. I believe there was a curse of Aramaic. Uh-huh. And that, that a lot of what we write is Hebrew. <coughs> I'm, not, I'm not certain, but I believe so. Okay. The Rashi script. Rashi script is totally different. Rashi script is, we call it Rashi script, but it's actually a Sephardi script which was used by certain printers. Also, we have many Israeli children, adults, so they write to each other, they write 
You can't be with your writing. Right? Yeah, I can't read my daughter's writing. I, I agree with you. You're, you're American, your daughter from Israeli. That's true. You, you can read, she, she can't. You can read yours, but you can't read yours. That's true. Uh, there's a script of each other that's very... Okay. Uh, let's deal with a couple of other things that uh, to do with this crap. Right, and then I want to go into something more, if you want, ideological. We're just going to deal with two more check, two or three more changes. Again, source number five. Maybe again, a surprising one. Ezra's grappling with the text of the Torah. You might be aware that in some places in the Torah, there are dots over the letters. Um, when Yaakov meets Esau, there are dots over the letters, right? It says, and he kissed him, there are dots over the letters, right? Okay. Or in Tarshat Mitzavim, there are dots over the letters. What are the dots about? Okay, so you should be aware that in Elfrenzi's work with Jewish manuscripts, uh, manuscripts in the Talmud and what have you, medieval manuscripts, in a manuscript, if somebody puts dots on the top, usually it's a sign that they're going to erase... They don't just scribble something out or use whiteout, right? They're going to erase those things. That, that was the notation. This is what it says here. These are the ten they, they mentioned. If Eliyahu Nabi comes along and says, why did you write that in there? I'll say to him, don't worry. I put these in the Torah. I'm ready. Earmark them to erase them. And if he says to me, well done for putting that in. Right? Yeah, I'll say, then I'll get rid of the dots. What is the implication of this, of this text from Abot to Rabbi Natan about Ezra? He didn't really know what was in the Torah. He, Ezra had a lot of doubts about what was the text of the Torah, certainly in these ten cases. By the way, there's even a further more radical shita of the Radak, where the Radak suggests that all of the Kri and Ktiv, I mean, sometimes in the Torah, you have a way to read a letter, but it's written differently. The Radak suggested that all the Kri and Ktiv was when Ezra wasn't quite sure of the text. Why? Because you go into exile, different texts all come back, different Torah come back from different communities, and somebody they say, this is our authoritative text, this is our authoritative text. How do you know what the text is? Right? So, there were various disparities, even with the best scribes. Right? Uh, we're only human. Yeah. When the previous it came back, uh, the Vashon army, is there any exegesis as to whether the Torah was uh, translated from Aramaic? Or that there was a Hebrew version, or what? Or various traditions. I'll put it this way: the Targum Unculus that we have is not the Targum that they're talking right, about. Right. There is one or two places where we find Aramaic in the Torah. Um, for example, the word in, when Yaakov says goodbye to Laban, it says he called the place Yegar Sahaduta, right? And in Hebrew, that's called Gal Eid, right? Sahaduta, Sahade, right? Anan Sahade, we are witnesses. Gal Eid, where Eid is Sahade. So, is that because we're talking here about a story which happens with, a Bab- with, a, with an Aramean? So we get Ar- Aramaic. There's an interesting uh, text, in, and it's not here, it's in Masechet Sofrim, where they talk about how they had three Sifrei Torah, and they had to adjust each one. And in one of the cases, it said in two of the books, it said Na'arei, 
And in one of the books it says Za'atute. Za'atute is a word in Aramaic. In other words, an Aramaic word is translation of crept into the actual Torah text. So those are examples of where that happened. But authoritative... Uh, the three were kept in the Beit HaMikdash right. in separate uh, containers. And they calibrated each one according to the other. Okay, we're going to keep moving. Okay, What I'm showing through the last two texts, right, the last two sources is, Ezra is trying to come up. If he wants to do Lehamid HaTamidim there to have lots of students, he's got to like create an authoritative text. A text that's legible. I want to just go to one further text, which I'm not going to. It's a long text. I'm not going to actually read what I put in the English here, um, rather than the Hebrew. So excuse me. Um, and then I want to go into for the last uh, 15 minutes. Hopefully, we'll read a little bit of Rav Cook. The following ten laws were legislated by Ezra. Number one, the Torah should be read publicly at Mincha on Shabbat. Number two, the Torah should be read publicly on Monday and Thursday. Number three, courts should be held Monday and Thursday. Number four, clothes should be laundered on Thursday. <laughs> Number five, garlic should be eaten on Friday. Okay? What's going on there? Okay. The Torah should be read on the Mincha of Shabbat. Who for? Who it says for the shopkeepers, but I actually don't think it means, the phrase in Hebrew is Yoshvei Kranot, the people who sit on the corners. Not clear what that means. This translation, which I think I took from the Salsino, uh, says the shopkeepers, in other words, they're busy all the rest of the week. When's the only time they're free? Shabbat afternoon, right? That might be the same meaning as Yoshvei Kronot. Yoshvei Kronot means when do people sit on the corner, play sheshbesh, you know, play board? When they're free. Shabbat afternoon, Shabbat Mincha, you've already been to Shul, you had lunch, you had a nap, right? Now you can actually sit and hear a share. He wanted to read the Torah when people were available, off work, and available to read, right? Um, it says here originally it was ordained that one man should read three verses Ezra enacted that three men should read a minimum of three verses each with a minimum of ten verses in total. I want to relate to this it's a bit bizarre the Gemara says that already that instituted the Torah should be read on Shabbat Mondays and Thursdays but Ezra decided to change it huge changes right change number one don't read it on Shabbat Monday and Thursdays. Read it on Shabbat afternoon. Number two, call three people up for the Torah. Number three, read ten verses. By the way, elsewhere in the Talmud they mention other things. He also instituted the Maturgaman. I don't know if you've ever been to a Yemenite shul. They translate the Torah into Aramaic, pasuk by pasuk. Okay? Verse by verse they translate the Torah. But Ezra Institute should be a translator. Rabbi Soloveitchik made a very interesting observation about Ezra's changes. He says, originally, what would they do? They'd sort of like, they'd be the marketplace on a Monday and Thursday, right? And what they'd do is they'd take, a, somebody would take a Sefer Torah out in the middle of the marketplace, read a few verses and say the Zorah Torah and put it away. So what I mentioned before, national religion. Do people really hear it? Do people understand it? It was like, almost like a public ceremony, right? I don't know if you've ever been in Israel, but I don't know what they do here in America, but uh, in, I probably do it at the end of broadcasting, although nowadays there's not like broadcasting. Like the Mitzvah Hakel. Like Every morning, I don't know if you know, but at 6 o'clock in the morning on Kol Yisrael, they say the Shema before the 6 o'clock news. When somebody reads the Shema, they've got this recording, 
They read the Shema before the six o'clock news. Okay. Public, yes, it's the it's the government channel. Okay, well, the chief really? government news channel, and the Shema is read every morning before the six o'clock news. Right? Don't worry, I'm not very often <laughs> open. <laughs> before the twenty-four hour uh, programming, when TV would go off at night in the United States, we had the Star Spangled Banner. Right, and they still they play Hatikva at one o'clock in the morning every day on Channel One in Israel. This is what I think what they were doing when they were reading the Torah on Shabbat, Monday and Thursday. They're saying, this is what we believe. Alright, so they should say. For that, you only need to read a couple of verses. But what did Ezra want to do? He said, let's read a whole chunk that people can understand. Let's call up a Kohen and a Levite and an Israel to show that the Torah doesn't belong to one caste. Let's translate it. Okay? Let's have an opportunity Right? to read it Shabbat afternoon. In other words, from a sort of like a, a, a statutory experience, he tried to churn, turn it into a learning moment. He turned Kriyata Torah into Limud Torah. Okay? Um, right? Rather than a statement of a pledge of allegiance, so to speak, he changed it into an opportunity to study. What I'm trying to demonstrate is, first of all, let's try and put all this together. Ezra is quite... Radical, I think, to say the least. Let's think about what he said. Not only does he set his agenda at making fences around the Torah, expanding religion, expanding the ranks of the Talmudim, of the students, right? To do this, he ensures that there's publication of lots of books, right? He, to make sure, he gets to working on an authoritative text, but in that authoritative text, he changes the font. Such that if we found Moshe Rabbeinu's Sefer Torah, we wouldn't even know how to read it. Okay? He changed the font so it will be more comprehensible to people around. He even was willing to change the language. Okay? He creates rituals like brachot and the whole structure of prayer. Okay? Oh, I forgot to mention the idea of doing your laundry on Thursday. Right? The river is not open for laundry except on Thursday. Right? Why? Because Thursday is washing day. Friday, everything dries. Now, everybody's got clean clothes for Shabbat. Okay? If you're wondering about the garlic right, business, Right? The Talmud says they saw garlic as an aphrodisiac. Okay? The increased sexual desire. And he instituted that Jewish families should have garlic on Fridays, so their wives would be, they could say it from a sexist perspective, sorry, I'm just saying how the Talmud says it, um, so their wives would be more attractive to them. In other words, he's meddling, he's worried about intermarrying, let's try and do something to make spice up family life. Let's make Jewish women more attractive to Jewish men. So Maybe. Possibly. Possibly. Uh, what I'm saying is, this Ezra, he's, he's all over the place, right? He's totally, you know, not only, you know, people will say to him, you know, very nice when you're working on the Torah, but you're messing around my Friday dinner menu. You know, like, what do you want? Okay, but Ezra has a very broad agenda, and he's not, a, not scared to do it. Now, I would argue that you know, I, I sort of wonder what... I, I don't know what Judaism would look like without Ezra. There's no doubt that, Ez, that, that, that after Ezra... What do they call this class? I said, why Judaism is never the same after Ezra? I think that... I think you can see it really wasn't the same. And... Um, <laughs> and then we're going to have to turn around and say, you know, what's going on here? Uh, now, by the way, as I said to you before... No sources have I brought here. I haven't brought any sources from 
Anything which isn't... What? Brought in these sources from Ezra. Uh, okay, you're right. I didn't bring sources from Ezra. And, and there's a very moving part in Ezra where they have the public reading. Yes. But that's the signal that they've lost the Torah. Right. That he's recreating it. Chapter 7 of the And the last Ezra. thing he's doing is these kinds of 10 rabbinic tiyons because he's got the big issues. So it's, it seems to me it goes back to your first point. This is the rabbinic Ezra. Right. These are the rabbis getting behind Ezra, okay. saying, this is what we do because we're like Ezra, and we're doing this. Because the book of Ezra is talking about saving everything. Right. There wasn't anything left. Right. It isn't about making specific rules. I, I agree with you. I, I did mention at the start, we're dealing yes, with the rabbinic yes, Ezra. Okay. Um, I, I want to move on. Please excuse me, because there's been a lot of questions, but I, want to, I don't want to go too late, and um, I want to just uh, try and deal with one further last point. How do we put this in a theological perspective? Because some might be saying to yourself, you know, this is crazy, right? Judaism was just sort of like concocted by Ezra, right? And um, some of that is in a sense, uh, obviously he was trying to preserve what is, but how do we deal with this maybe from a theological perspective? And for this, I'd like to share with you a passage from Rav Cook. I've given it to you in Hebrew, and you also will see it on the back page in English. Um, the passage by Rav Cook is in Sefer Orot, uh, a section called Zaronim, number, section number 7. Um, and he's dealing with a phrase which, usually, which uh, is called, comes from the Talmud. If you look in the Hebrew, you've got the quote from the Gemara Babatra. Chacham adif minabi. The sage is preferable to the prophet. Um, the way this is generally understood, for example, when Maimonides understood this phrase, the sage is preferable to a prophet, he understood it like this. Let's say we are studying a deep passage of the Talmud and we have to work out what to do, right? Some sort of theoretical question, right? And um, we're arguing about it in the Bet Midrash. And suddenly, in through the door, bursts Elijah the prophet. He says, you know... The answer is, it's forbidden. So we say to him, thank you Elijah, take a seat at the table. That was a very nice prophecy, but he's not interested. Okay? Um, as you probably heard from others, Hanur Shalachnai, Loba Shamayimhi, the sage is preferable to the prophet. Right? After the close of prophecy, we are interested in the sage and not the prophet. That's how Maimonides understands it. Right? We're not interested in developing halakha according to prophecy. Halakha is a... Um, intellectual process which we have to argue and corroborate through logic and sabara uh, argument but not something which we get you know the process of revelation right happens but now there's a process of trying to derive the law however Rav Cook develops this in a completely different way let me try and uh, um, okay you know what let's read the beginning of as a rule Poets know how to portray, portray the nobler side of life. It's beauty. It's dynamism by talent. Sorry, I would read the Hebrew, but Rav Cook's Hebrew is very, very dense. And I'm experienced, it will take me about 40 minutes to go through the Hebrew. Again. So I don't want to go on for 40 minutes, I want to go much quicker through this passage. So please excuse me, I'm not reading it in Rav Cook's very beautiful Hebrew. Uh, his Hebrew really is beautiful, and there's a lot to point out in the Hebrew, but um, I prefer to get some of the ideas um, and to get through the passage. As a rule, poets know how to portray the noble sides of life, its beauty, dynamism and vitality. They also know how to describe the evils of life and to protest against them vigorously. 
So this is poets. He actually says in Hebrew, he talks about Meshorim um, and Melitzim. Okay? Maybe means poets, artists in general. Okay? In other words, I don't know. What's he talking about? Well, William Wordsworth, who wanders, you know, lonely as a cloud through the daffodils, that's the beauty of life. And, uh, I don't know, Charles Dickens, right, describing the ugly side of Victorian and England, right? Um, the outrages of society. Poets do this very well. Music artists, right? You have music artists who raise the banner of, you know, I don't know, global warming or starvation in Africa or what have you, and manage to mobilize and garner a huge amount of support. Alright, so, but the passionate force of the imaginative faculty that artists have is unable to determine the various factors and particular conditions that preserve life and safeguard it from defects that are liable to generate very destructive consequences. This is a body of knowledge that concerns itself with the particulars. Here begins the work of physicians, economists, engineers, judges, and all those who pursue practical fields. So in other words, I can have, which I explain what he's saying, I can rally support and create a global concert about global warming, but if I can't get politicians to sign a treaty about carbon emissions and get that enforced, right, and work out how we are going to worry about, I don't know, recycling and this, that and the other. You can make a lot of hot air, sorry to use a bad example of this regard, um, but it won't help anything. In other words, what do poets do? They can describe beautiful things, they can describe ugly things, and they can really fire people's imagination, but then how do you change stuff? You've got to be on the ground, right? You know, that, that's how it's got to be. In the 80s, there was Bob Geldof raising money for Africa. A lot of that money never got there. Why? Because they didn't deal with the problems of, uh, you know, the militias who were there and all of the political problems and stuff got eaten up by all the bureaucracy. So, what does it help if you raise billions or millions of dollars? But you need to have, what does he say, the physicians, the economists, the engineers, the judges and all those who pursue practical fields. Okay, so we've got the dreamers and we've got the practitioners. Okay? So let's understand. Oh, let me just give you Ralph Cook's basic thesis. This is where he's going. Who are the dreamers? The prophets. Prophets describe two things. What do they always do? They describe God in beautiful terms. Isaiah sees God. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Sees God's power. The sublime. And what do they also do? They tell you how evil society is. All the disgraces of society. That's what... But he's going to claim... That essentially, like the poets, prophets talk a lot, but they're not so, easy, not so good at changing things. <laughs> He's going to essentially claim that prophecy, in a way, failed. Now you can argue, prophecy succeeded because we still read it today. Right? I think Rabbi Sachs once said, prophets are such failures in their lifetime, and ever since their demise, they've been much more successful. Right? <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll put it very simply. Um, what do the prophets always say if you've read uh, you know, all the prophets in the book of Kings or Yemiah, uh, they always say if you don't stop worshipping idols if you don't practice social justice what's going to happen? Destruction. Exile. Exile! Destruction of the temple now let's see if they succeeded what happened? We went into exile and the temple was destroyed so that means if you can take the litmus test right? they weren't very successful right? I mean I know that I've been measured in the end product but, in this case, they were warning us about something, and 
we didn't listen. So there's something a bit problematic in their methodology. Okay? So they're like the artists, right? Um, so, this is what Rav Cook says. Let's, let's just read a little bit. The distinction is even wide application. Prophecy saw the evil force of idolatry in ancient Israel, protested against it with a woman's mind. It envisions the majesty and delight associated with belief in one God and portrayed it in all its radiance. It saw corruption and moral depravity, and it was religiously inspired to change society through its holy and sophisticated articulation. But the little lapses out of which forged the gross body of sin, these remained hidden from the eye of every prophet and seer. By the way, Rav Kook uses two metaphors in his Hebrew. One is, he says, the ropes of sin. If you look at a rope, a rope is made up of little ropes, right? Those little ropes are made up by fibers. He says, the prophet can see the rope, can't see the thin fibers. The other example he gives is veins in the body. He says, where did the blood come in the veins? Some smaller blood vessels and smaller to capillary, but, you know, can you get to that fine grade? Can you get to that, you know, microscopic level? He says, prophecy doesn't see that fine grade stuff. It looks at the big picture. He says, so who does that? Listen to this. It is the practical daily observance of the mitzvot with all their detailed laws that will decisively vanquish the darkness of idolatry through the observance, study, habituated performance and the love of the law after a span of time they will release their hidden elegance and grace along with a pulse of purely godly living. What's he going to say? He says, who is going to supersede, succeed and supersede the prophets? The rabbis, the development of halakha. What does halakha deal with? How should I select things on Shabbat, the Lord's of Borah, or should I take the food out of the chaff or should I hit the chaff out of the food should I put on my right shoe on first or my left shoe on first and sometimes we look at these laws and we say that seems a bit petty oh what so I said a whole Shema straight, but I missed out Mashiv Haruach and now I've got to go back so what does the cook say yes worrying about all those little details makes all the difference because it's from the little details the big structure is formed and you think it's just a little detail right but really the little details are you know, you always have the question, how many cards can you take out of the pack of cards before the whole thing falls down? Or I, I sometimes used to play a game in my mind. I used to think, okay, let's say I kept Shabbos, but, you know, I decided to, I don't know, should I take something really, really serious? Tear toilet paper, right? We all know that's the most serious offense on Shabbat. Let's say I decided to tear toilet paper and I also didn't go to shul. Okay, would that feel like Shabbos? Let's say I... Taught to them, didn't go to shul, and also I decided to um, write or use my computer. Would that still feel like? How, how much can you take away? It'll still feel like shabbos, right? Don't worry, I haven't done this. It was just a thought experiment. It's all right. <laughs> Calm down. Now, see, my, my my point is like this. What I'm saying is there are lots of things in place which create that atmosphere. You can say it in a positive sense. Think about how many things we do on shabbat. It's the, the fact that we can't cook, and that we have to do all that crazy. Hectic buying and cooking before suddenly you sit down and be ah, right? And and you know, certain things have been all created throughout, and that creates this whole thing which is now Shabbat. All of those details have created constructed a whole reality. Says Rav Cook, it's not the amazing statements of the prophet, it's the details of the rabbis that have created a more robust, pervasive, um, long lasting Judaism. And that is what has been more successful than the prophets. It isn't so grand. It isn't so morally, you know, 
um, how should I say it, condem- condemning. In fact, it's sometimes much more myopic. Smaller grade, it's more microscopic. But ironically, he says, really ironically, this is been a much more effective tool in keeping Judaism. The rabbinic tool. Let me, maybe, um, let's go into the second column and I will just, you'll see it very clearly. How do you understand the following sentences? Uh, conversely, and then how do you Right? He's, he's, he's just said, through the observance of the performance of the right of the law, the Spanish time they release their hidden elements. Conversely, the gradual negligence of, maybe it's state war, let me just read the Hebrew for a second. Um, the Hebrew says, um, one second, the gradual abandonment, which ridicules the notion of action. But I'm asking this Kim, with all of their small branches and precise inflections, right? The Fatahat Derech Shalharas will develop a way of destruction, but then it destroys the vessel, Shebani Kvatarot Alion, which will be able to receive the divine spirit. Okay? By the way, he's, these are ideas which he was very familiar with, because he lived during the time of emancipation, right? He lived at a time when people really had it with halakha. If anybody who's read, you know, any of the writings of the Emancipation or any of the writings of early Zionism, where they say, see, Judaism is so small-minded, worrying about all sorts of minutiae, and the early Zionist people like the Chara'am, like Pinsker, are longing for a broader canvas of society to deal with. Why are we so worried about every little detail? Let's talk about big things like government and army and economy. Right? By the way, Rav Kutu will relate to that. I know you want to ask a question. Just give me one minute. I want to finish, finish the passage. Could. Look, look what he's going to say. Let's just read the last passage. I'm going to try and sew it up in the next five minutes and then happy to take lots of questions. It was therefore necessary to assign the expression of broad principles to the prophets and particular to the sages. And as the Talmud declares, the sage is more important than the prophets. What the prophet, with its impassioned and fiery exhortations, could not accomplish in upcurging the Jewish people of idolatry and uprooting the basic causes of the most degrading forms of oppression and violence and murder, sexual perversity and bribery was accomplished by the sages through the expanded development of Torah by raising many disciples and by the assiduous study of particular laws, the detailed laws and the derived applications. So that's what he says. He, he feels like in the long term halakha won out. Now let me just go to the next I have to show you how Rav Cook also says there's a rebound. As Rav Cook says, in the course of time, the concern with the work of the sages predominated over the work of the prophets, and the institution of prophecy ceased altogether. After some time, the general particulars declined. They were imminent in the particulars, but they were not readily apparent. At the end of the present epoch, when the light of prophecy will begin, will, I think it should be, begin to have its revival, as we promised, I shall pour out my spirit on all fresh, there will develop a reaction, perhaps disdain for the particulars. And he said in the next paragraph, this will continue until the radiance of prophecy will re-emerge from its hiding and reveal itself not as unripe fruit, but as the first fruits of vitality in life. And prophecy itself will acknowledge the great achievements and effectiveness of the sages, and in righteous humility exclaim, the sage is more important than the prophet, etc. Ralph Cook wants to claim like this. Ultimately, he says, it is that halakha which took us through the years of exile. However, we reach a point after many thousands of years development of the old law where we can't see the wood from the trees anymore. The moral voice, let's take both issues. The spirituality, the sense of 
immediacy of God, the sense of having a real connection with God, is lost. I don't know whether he's referring to Chassidut or I don't know, some other spiritual movement. And he says, likewise, the moral sensitivity, not worrying about, but the Subya says, is that just a plain morality, somebody's suffering, this is unethical, is lost. That's plain prophetic, do justice, Sedek, Mishpat, has been lost, we've sort of got embroiled in all the minutiae of Halakha, he says, prophecy has to re-emerge. But prophecy is not going to, now, even prophecy, when it re-emerges, will say, in other words, he sees it as, prophecy worked, sort of failed, we went into the halachic system, then halakha is also going to be wrong, it's too much of a pendulum in the wrong way, prophecy needs to re-emerge, but there needs to be a fusion. Halakha won't lose its place, but there has to be some sort of re-merging of broad spiritual image, right, with a, a, a halachical living. And that, he says, will be the ultimate fusion. Why am I reading this in this perspective of this year? Because I've been arguing that Ezra came up with a radical new way. And I think this radical new way is what, in the academic world, we call the beginning of the rabbinic period, right? With the starting of writing down not only the written law, but the oral law. And of course, it is the seeds which allow the rabbinic movement to begin the whole development of Torah Shalpan, certainly writing it down and its analysis and its development and growth which created the, the huge body of, of, of law that we know today. As I had suggested in the Shior, I think this was a type of Judaism which really shaped uh, our religion and, and, and gave a resilience to the Jewish people for, you know, for the last 2,000 years. And yes, I think many of us in our different ways, and I certainly call myself in this, sometimes feel that there is another side that has to be mentioned. The voice of prophecy also needs to be heard, right? We'll call it that way. And therefore, what I think I've tried to show, first of all, I hope that I exposed you with a whole different side of Ezra. And maybe to a glimpse of this sort of like, the beginning of this whole rabbinic side of things. Um, but Rav Cook really describes this huge panoramic, you know, sine, sine wave of, 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 Jewish, of Jewish history. And uh, I think it's really up to us to, 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 to try and deal with these balances. The balances between the loud... Uh, you know, powerful prophetic voice um, and also the development of particulars, the development of the personal ritual, the exacting laws that, uh, that, that Ezra developed. Of course, these are struggles we're still struggling with in the Jewish world. Okay? Everybody in each of their different communities and in each of the denominations is always struggling between, on the one hand, how to retrain two, uh, how to remain true to tradition but also how, what needs to be updated. Right? That's an example where he realized in order for Judaism to survive, it had to be recalibrated. And of course, with such a fast, you know, Ezra is dealing with a time of very, very extreme changes. Exile, return. We're also dealing with our very fast world with times of huge changes. And uh, sometimes we, need, we hope that we will have the wisdom of people like Ezra to enable us to, on the one hand, still uh, feel that we are in a state of continuity, but also to know how to rise to the contemporary challenges. So let's hope that you know, maybe some of the people here and uh, the Jewish world in general will know how to rise to those challenges. Thank you very much. Uh, anybody wants to, I'm here. Um, if anybody wants to ask questions, I hope that uh, they're selling books outside if you want, and I'm happy to sign any books if you like. Yes. Uh, you don't have to take questions, I know, late, end of a week, but uh, yes. I just want to add something.
Yes, that's it. The Amida prayer. The great men of the great assembly. Oh, okay. Okay, by the way, it was, again, a pro- it's still being discussed in the court of Rabban Gamliel in the second century. So clearly, it was a process, a long process. Oh, okay. Okay? So they didn't, like, write it all at one point. They maybe created the basic structure. Um, yes? Um, if you know, Shikhan Sagagola would have answered, you know, had they instituted answer, the Kiddush in Abdullah, um, was there no interpretation of some active form of software you know, like that I showed beforehand? Um, I have no idea. I have no okay, idea. So. The Prophet Yishayahu does talk about, there's that uh, Pasuk about, Vedaber uh, Davar, you know, you shouldn't, your walking should not be your walking. The, the, the rabbis later on develop. Yishayahu talks about Shabbat and uh, should be careful how you keep Shabbat. So I don't know. You're, what you're referring to is that rabbinically we say Zachor means Kiddush. Okay? But Zachor could have been interpreted in a more sort of like amorphic way, that Shabbat, your clothes should be different. Let's have an interpret the verse in Isaiah. Your walking should be different. Your speech should be different. Right. That's how we are. Well, that's uh, we see as the rabbis say it's a kavod uh, va which is a uh, a law of nevi'im. So there definitely seems to be some development in that regard. But it seems like certainly in that early period um, that, that, that it wasn't interpreted in that way. So excuse me. There's just a few other questions, that I, and you asked a, a number of questions. So I'd like to get Sorry, to the other people. Okay. Sorry, please excuse me. Yeah. I'm just wondering, um, did Ezra leave any opposition when it came to these reforms? It was just because it seems like it was just widespread ignorance, <laughs> and he was just like, I'm going to do whatever I want, and nobody's going to really say anything. The opposition to Ezra in the Book of Ezra is mentioned with a whole bunch of like sort of local people, uh, many of them Samaritans, it would seem, who saw themselves as very authentic Jews and didn't like this sort of Babylonian that had come along with his own version of Judaism. I think it's reasonable to assume that the Judaism also evolved in the exile time in Babylon, right? And taken on a sort of different nature. 
And the people who were still in Eretz Yisrael, right? It's because the people who went back with Ezra were like the low-class people, right? They were like they were the ones who went back with Zerubbabel. The ones who came back with Ezra, it's not clear. They seem to have had means. It seems like he garnered people that he thought would be necessary to inject in the book of Ezra. Like he went looking for specific other people. Yeah. We don't know whether or not they were of a higher caliber, but he needed permission to get them. And the Ganesha chapter 7, the, the first group who come with Zerubbabel, they do seem to be maybe a poorer group. The group who come with Ezra chapter 7, which is about 10,000 people, um, 8,000, 9,000 people, according to some of the commentaries, um, they seem to be on, on, on maybe on a higher level, and he particularly brings with him Kohanim and Levim. These people have servants. So we, we don't quite know who the people... But the information on that period is just so sparse. So in the book... We see that there are certain, uh, you know, groups who like him, but there are certain groups who certainly do not. Uh, the, the family of the high priests are intermarried, and he is trying to, uh, you know, stop it. And he encounters a huge amount of opposition. In fact, including assassination attempts. So, it, it, uh, sorry, and the, they try and assassinate the Chemin, not Ezra. Um, yeah. But, but um, was there intermarriage in Barbell? I don't know. I don't know. Can we assume that? A lot of his reforms were not actually effective because we see that Nehemiah battled some of the same problems that Ezra had 20 years. Oh, for sure, and I, that's why I think that you have to focus on you have to focus on the men on the great assemb- over the great assembly. Um, in other words, it's clear that Ezra. I don't know if it was really Ezra himself. Ezra clearly created a certain momentum which was always attributed to him, but later on it was like maybe something that developed over the la- over the you know, 100 years after that. There are certain bizarre changes in the Second Temple. One key change is, First Temple, we're grappling with idolatry all the time. Second Temple, it's all like, disappeared, it's not a problem. When you read the book, somebody mentioned Josephus before, you read Josephus, you have examples of Roman, you know, a Roman captain comes to a town and says, we want you to serve idols. And they all say, forget it. You know, the Roman world was pagan. It's like, the Jews said, so they said, I'm going to kill you. So they all said, kill us. It's like a problem which was so difficult to shake in First Temple, suddenly Second Temple, no one's attracted to it. There's some bizarre things that I don't quite know how to trace or understand that happened during the Second Temple period. So what, what I did here was try to do a sort of like a, a read and sort of weave together the rabbinic statements about the, about the rabbinic statements about the Second Temple period, the way the, the rabbinic imagination... Uh, views this unshaped lesson of Dollar. How it really happened is a very good question. I'm curious what Rav Kokon has to say about his love of the Shammai versus Hillel. And if he thinks that nuance is going to be less important, then why are we going to become more strict? Okay. Um, I, I'm sure he's written about that some. Right. I wouldn't be surprised. Yes. Um, just to better understand what Pepper <laughs> was doing with the language. Um, with the potential for an Aramaic Torah. This seems like if we had this situation come up again today, we would almost have a Torah written in modern Hebrew. Modern Hebrew or English or whatever it might be. By the way, you're probably aware of the Gemara, which talks about that you can read you know, certain texts in Greek. Right? Why do we always talk so much about the sanctity of individual letters or Darshan? on specific words no, one so right. translated or even had those words. all of the Kabbalistic talk about the actual letters doesn't work with this Gemara or Gemara talk right? about Darshaning on right 100% and the structure of the letters and there's a huge amount of Kabbalah written about the form of the letters they're going to have to argue with this Gemara and say no give me a break they're always wanting this letter but say I think archaeology bears out this Gemara very well 
Okay. So there still could be crowns with these, you know, I guess. <laughs> there could be crowns with these. I, the crowns aren't the problem. The problem is there are much more, you know, other, other words, other things which are said about the letters. And there are whole Kabbalistic volumes which are written about the actual structure of the letters and the Yud being the basis of, the, of all the letters and, you know, all, all that. So. If you translate to Aramaic, it's a, it's a mystical... A mystical doctrine. R-A-R, what was received. And to whatever degree I might be mystical, I might tune into it. To whatever degree I might be non-mystical, I don't get those sideways. Right. Okay, we're going to leave it here. Thank you ever so much, Erev Tov. Really, thank you for coming out on a, you know, winter's evening, the end of the week. <laughs>